0: Amen. Lord, that is our heart, that we would be humble before you. Lord, how else could we be before the creator of the universe, almighty God? Lord, I pray that we would die to ourselves, less of us and more of you. Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now, that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Turn your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis. Deuteronomy chapter 32. I said Genesis on Sunday, too. I'm on a roll. I'm consistent. Man. Alright. Deuteronomy 32. We're going to continue to look at the Song of Moses. Tonight we're going to pick up in verse 11, and Lord willing, we'll go through the rest of the chapter. If we run out of time, we run out of time. We'll finish next time. It's a great thing about teaching verse by verse. Now, here's what's happening so far. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, we're coming toward the close of it. This is Moses' 120th birthday. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years on the backside of the wilderness, and now 40 years he's been leading the children of Israel. As you heard me say before, he spent 40 years trying to become somebody, 40 years becoming nobody, and then 40 years finding out that God can use anybody. And we see here that during this time that he's been delivering the law to the next generation. He's letting this next generation know before they enter into the land of promise how they're to walk with God. How the previous generation had missed God, how they ended up dying out in the wilderness. He reminded them of God's deliverance out of bondage, how God had provided for them, cared for them. Now we get to Deuteronomy 32 and he is teaching them a song. Now, this is the first ever recorded, published song, ever, in history. Now, the great thing about this song is, and the reminder I shared last week, is it's 43 verses of clear and exhortive warning to be memorized, sang, and taught to the next generation. And the thing about songs, as I said a couple weeks ago, actually, is that while sermons are often forgotten, songs are remembered. And... What This song was to be taught to the next generation. It was to be sang continually that they would remember all that God had done for them before they came into the land of promise. That so they wouldn't forget. They wouldn't allow the fatness of the land to take their eyes off of God. Israel's character is, is going to come to mind here. He's going to talk about their character. He's going to talk about their wicked behavior. He's going to talk about God's righteous judgment upon sinful behavior as a warning. So this, this whole... Song is filled with both the character of God and then the wickedness or the shortcomings of Israel. He's got both godly encouragement and exhortation as well as godly warning for things that will happen to them. And again, it was to be sung as a constant reminder. Remember again, memorize, pass on to the next generation. So, so far what we saw a couple of weeks ago, in verses 1 through 4 we saw the character of God. And then in verses 5 and 6, we saw the character of Israel, that they are a wicked people. And then in verses 7 through 14, we got to verse 10, we began to look at the goodness of God toward His people. Now tonight, after we look at the goodness of God toward His people, depending on how much time we have, we'll look at the wickedness of Israel, the faithfulness of God to discipline His people, The vengeance of God against his enemies. And then finally, time permitting, we'll look at Moses' final exhortation and then the the statement that he's going to die. So let's pick up in verse 11. And remember, this portion he's talking about, again, God is speaking the goodness of God toward Israel. We saw the character of God, that God is good and holy and perfect. Then we saw the character of Israel, that they fall short, that they're disobedient and they're rebellious. And now we're seeing again the heart of God toward his people beginning in verse let's look at verse 10 just to bring us in to verse 11 he found him in a desert and in a wasteland a howling wilderness he encircled him he instructed him he kept him as the apple of his eye Now we talked about this last time about how God delivered them out of bondage and they were so precious to him the apple the pupil of his eye he protected them like you and I would our eye precious to him again love them so much that as we will see later in the person of Christ, he'd rather die than live without them. Now look at verse 11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So he loves them like an eagle loves those eaglets in its nest. Now, this is a great thing to study because again, it's God. It's a God thing. But how do, how do eagles learn to fly? Eagles learn to fly when they're The mother eagle goes in and begins to take the softness out of the nest, a little bit at a time, till the nest becomes rougher and rougher and rougher, and eventually she starts kicking the eagles out of the nest, literally pushes them out and drops them. Now when she drops them, they they begin to fall at a rapid rate, and they instinctively start to flap their wings, but they don't necessarily figure out how to fly, so the mother flies alongside them, and then at the last moment catches them before they hit the ground, takes them back up to the nest, and kicks them out again. And keeps doing this until eventually the eagle learns how to fly. And this is what it says God does with his children. Now it might seem to us, man that's kind of mean, but know what it is, is God not only wants to minister to us, but he also wants to help us to grow in our relationship with him. He wants us to come to a place where we spread our wings, we don't just sit in the nest all day, we're not just being fed, but now we go out and we minister to others. Now we go out and we use the gifts that God has given us. And so just like the, the eagle would catch the eaglets in her, in her wings, so too the Lord does with us. And it's through trials and difficulty that you and I learn how to fly figuratively. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. If there's no trials, if there's no test, there can be no testimony. And every experience they had in the wilderness was an opportunity for the children of Israel to grow. But sadly, most of the time, how did they respond to trials? What do they do? They whine, And you know what? What do we do in the midst of trials? Are we whining or are we growing? You know, we can be whining or we can be growing. And sadly, what's happening here most often with the children of Israel in the midst of difficulty, they blame God, they question God, they doubt God, instead of saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I, this is for your, your glory. Lord, show me what you want to teach me through this. You know what? That's what I talk to most people about more than anything in counseling. When they're going through difficulty, you need to learn to trust that God's in control. Amen? Now, it's easier said than done sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you go, it's easy for me to tell someone else God's in control when it's their problem. When they're falling out of the nest at 150 miles an hour, yeah, God's in control, don't sweat it, right? And it's harder when I'm the one trying to flap my wings and I think I'm going to hit the ground, right? And it's learning to trust God because it's every single time he catches us in his wings, every single time he comes through right on time that we grow and our faith grows. And so count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Verse 12, so the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. So God, again, alone led them through the wilderness. He led them out of a land of idolatry. If you remember, if you were here during Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, how did he lead them? With a pillar of fire and a cloud that covered them. And when the cloud moved, they moved. They just stayed under the cloud. They stayed where it was really cool, right? And that was in the center of God's will. And so God led them, he directed them, and it was God alone who had delivered them and protected them and provided for them. It was him alone, and it's him alone in our lives that we should love and serve and worship and follow. There are no other gods. You know, it's amazing to me, looking at the children of Israel, they've always been an interesting, I want to sit down and talk to one of them sometime. When we get to heaven, I'm going to go, dude, what were you guys thinking, right? But then he'll probably say, well, what were you thinking when you did this and this and this? And he'll be right, amen? Amen. But you look at them and you think, how in the world could they have the pillar of fire and have the pillar of the cloud and have, you know, almighty God, the Shekinah glory of God dwelling over the presence of the tabernacle and him wiping out the the Egyptian army and parting the Red Sea and dropping manna out of the sky and wiping out their enemies. And as soon as they get into the land of promise, they start worshiping idols. You think, how in the world do you fall into that trap? And as we continue on through the Song of Moses, we're going to get some answers. Sadly, again, we know that Israel, though led by God, there was no foreign God with him. They're going to fall into the trap as soon as the foreign gods surround them of beginning to serve them. You know what? We don't, most of us, serve statues or worship statues. But you know what? We have our own idols, our careers, our money, our possessions, pleasure, popularity, whatever it might be. You put anything before God, it's an idol. Nothing should come before God. Nothing. God's first. What about before my family? Before your family. You know what? Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father. Now, he's not talking about truly hating them, but your love for God should be so radical that everything else in comparison is almost like hate. But you know something? That's, some people say, well, that just doesn't seem right. Let me tell you something. If you are sold out and in love with God, you're going to be the greatest husband, the greatest wife, the greatest mom, the greatest dad. Because when you have that love for God, it'll pour out on your kids. Verse 13 He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. It says, He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. The reference here is to the land flowing with milk and honey. God blessed him with rich soil that produced bountiful crops, honey of wild bees that, again, were in the crevices of the rocks, olive trees growing where nothing else would grow, a land of promise, even seemingly unproductive places produced both honey and oil. Between a rock and a hard place, honey and oil. And I like that. Between a rock and a hard place, honey and oil. Because to me, honey points to sweetness and oil to anointing. And I think it's interesting that when we go through trials, that's where the sweetness of the Lord comes out in our walk. And that's where God can use us and pour out His Spirit upon us to touch the lives of people around us. It's in those places of difficulty and trials. Verse 14, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of grapes. So what did God bless them with? Not only was the land, again, flowing with milk and honey, but truly there was milk and butter and cream that came from cattle and milk from the sheep and rich food like the fat of lambs. Remember, when they were in the wilderness, what were they eating? Manna. And they should have been blessed with manna, but now God gives them even more than they need. He gives them all they need. Manna was sufficient. And now God's giving them exceedingly abundantly above all they could ask or think. He's given them the fat of the lamb, and they've got everything they could possibly want. It says in that verse, they gave them choice wheat, rams, and goats, and again, pure wine. Now remember, in the wilderness, they only drank water, and now they had wine, and they also had choice grapes. Now, all of these things have been given to them. You would think they would just be praising God, right? Right? We went from manna and, you know, God was blessing, but now we're in a land flowing with milk and honey. God has richly blessed us. Look at all that we have. God is so good. And then lastly, the thing I want you to see before we move on to the next verse, it's interesting that the wine is called the blood of the grapes because the blood speaks of redemption and the blood of Christ. Because Jesus' first miracle, he turned water water into wine. And he said at the last supper, holding up the wine, this is my blood which was shed for you. Truly God had blessed them richly. He delivered them from the bondage in the wilderness to a land flowing with milk and honey. So just how did Israel respond to God's blessings? How do you and I respond to God's blessings? How should we respond? Sadly, often we respond like Israel does. Look what Israel does. So how does Israel respond? God's blessing them. God's pouring out His favor upon them. And what do they do? It says in verse 15, we're going to look at the wickedness of Israel. But Jesheron grew fat and kicked. Jesheron is another word, it means upright ones, but it's another word for Israel. So Israel grew fat. So God blessed, Israel grew fat. God poured out, you know, blessings upon their lives, land flowing with milk and honey, they got fat. And, and as we continue to read on. When they were in the wilderness, they were crying out to God, but now they're blessing, they're being, they're being prospered. And Look what it says. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. This is a song. They're singing this. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese, right? They're singing this song. And this song is a reminder, and this is God speaking to the children of Israel, how they had, the word for fat there means oily and gross. You grew oily and gross. They kicked, they trampled, they despised. The word grew thick there in Hebrew actually means they grew dense. For you and I, that has a different meaning, doesn't it? And they made gods of their own flesh and its desires. They became obese. They were concerned only about feeding their flesh. They go into a land flowing with milk and honey. They cease to be desperate for God. And now they're feeding themselves and they grow obese. And they're out of control. Then it says, Then he forsook God who made him. You know what? The word in Hebrew for forsook means to smite or reject. And this truly is the peril of prosperity. We cry out to God in the midst of difficulty, but when things are good, we become self-sufficient and we forget God. You know what? We are a fat and blessed nation and God is being forgot in the United States. Is that true or not? You'd be amazed how much more desperate people are for God in places of difficulty. And there's, you know what, I'll be honest with you. I pray, and you know what, if the, if the whole stock market crashes, you can blame me. Because I pray often, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring us to our knees. Whatever you have to do. If the stock market has to crash, or the housing market has to fall through the ground, whatever it takes, Lord, to get people's eyes off of themselves and get them back on you, do it. And you know what? Sometimes we think we look at blessing as being those who are fat. Man, he's got a big house, got a lot of money. Look how fat he is. He must be blessed. And we long for that blessing. We we equate physical things to being blessed. But let me tell you something. Too often those physical things that we want so much are the very things that will take our eyes off of the Lord. And you might say, I don't understand why I'm living paycheck to paycheck. God wants to keep you desperate for Him. Good place to be, amen? May we not get so fat, may we not be so, you know, thick, dense like the children of Israel. Well, we're no longer desperate. that We began to remove God from everything, like we do in the United States. We've got to take God out of school, out of public places, out of the courtrooms. Israel was the most blessed nation of their time, and they forgot God. And I believe that USA is the most blessed nation of our time, and we're beginning to forget God. You know what? We're called to be salt and light here, guys. Amen? And we need to stand up when nobody else will. And then it says there, They forsook God who made Him and scornfully esteemed the rock of His salvation. They scornfully or lightly esteemed the Lord. God was no longer prominent, no longer dependent upon the very source of their salvation. Again, remember, before in the morning they would get up and go look for the manna. They'd get up in the morning and look to see if the cloud had moved. First thing, where's the cloud? So the first thing they had to do in the morning was look up. the cloud moved, they had to pack up their stuff and get under the cloud. Follow the Lord wherever He leads. Look to Him at all times. Now, land flowing with milk and honey, they don't know where the cloud is anymore. Now they're sufficient in themselves. They don't have to get up and get the manna. They're starting to trust in their own flesh. They provoked Him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked Him to anger. They had turned away from the rock of salvation to throw themselves on the rocks of destruction. They turned from the rock of salvation, the rock of ages, to worship a pile of rocks. It's exactly what they did. Why? Because they were self-sufficient. They were no longer desperate for God. So they created gods of their own or turned to the gods that were in the land. When the true and living God does not have the rightful place upon the throne of our lives, we open ourselves up for worship of the false gods of this world. Everybody is serving somebody or something. That is a fact. Everybody. I don't care. Point them out. They're serving something. you got to serve somebody. And so it's going to be the devil. It's going to be the Lord. It's going to be our career. It's going to be something. And what's happened here to the children of Israel, they've grown fat they've been blessed instead of praising the one who blessed them they allowed their fatness and the things of this world to cause them to take their eyes off of God and then they provoked the Lord to jealousy you know Israel was God's chosen people he had delivered them he had protected them he had provided for them he had blessed them and they respond by turning and worshiping false gods now understand this God's jealousy is not like our jealousy our jealousy is sinful because our jealousy is, is self-focused. It's all about us. God's jealousy is a jealousy of a loving husband whose wife has betrayed him and his heart is broken because now she's lost and she's going to be hurt. That's how God feels about you. He loves you so much. And these abominations provoked him to anger. The word for abomination is immorality. The word there is disgusting, aberrant behavior. And he said, these, this aberrant behavior produced righteous anger in the heart of our God. And you know what? When God's angry with you, that's not a good place to be. Amen? Those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. But you know what? If we walk in the center of His will, we don't have to feel the paddle all the time. Amen? You don't have to. Just walk in the center of His will, and you won't have to feel it. But you know what's sad? Is too often we think, That we're unique. We think that we're different. That God's word doesn't apply to us. He doesn't know my circumstances. He just doesn't know what I'm going through. It's a little different for me. Well, what were these immoral acts that they were committing? Look at verse 17. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Now, what in the world? How do you go from walking in the wilderness, provided for by God? I mean, weren't they there? They were young, most of them, at the time. But at Mount Sinai, when God spoke audibly... And the ground shook, and they were so afraid, they said, Moses, you go talk to them. For now on, we can't take it. And they went from that to worshipping the dead idols in the land of paganism. A land flowing with milk and honey that had pagan gods still there. And it's interesting that when they worshipped idols, what does it say they worshipped? What does it say? Demons. Demons. I absolutely believe this to be true. Every idol that exists, there's a demon behind it. Now, too often we think, you know, we give the devil too much credit. It's the devil this, the devil this, the devil that. The devil made me do it. The demon of chocolate, that's why I'm eating it and all this stuff, right? Quit blaming the devil all the time. Sometimes it's just plain stinking you. Amen? But at the same time, it is a spiritual battle that goes on around us. And my daughter's in India right now. Keep praying for her. You know I go to India every year. They have 30 million gods in India, 30 million. It's insane. But you know what I believe? I believe for every one of those idols, there's a demon behind it. And he, because he says right here that they provoked him by sacrificing to demons. Well, they were sacrificing to idols. And when we sacrifice to idols, we're sacrificing to the devil. Idol worship is devil worship. The golden calf is devil worship. The Hindu gods, devil worship. Buddhism, devil worship. Worship, you know what? Worshiping the statue of Mary is devil worship. That's what it is. Because we're not to worship Mary. We're worship God, amen? If anybody could be grieved in heaven, it would be Mary. And we're not to worship idols. You know what else? You know what, this might seem, and I don't want to be legalistic, I'm, I'm, you know, we've been talking about that on Sundays, you know. We walk by faith, and we we have freedom in Christ and liberty in Christ. But let me say this: as a Christian, I don't think you should have a little Buddha in your garden. Why? I don't get it. Or even, you know, what one of these Inca trinkets or tinket, you know all this stuff? What's all that stuff based on? It's demonic in nature. Amen. I mean, if you got a Buddha, don't sell it. Don't have a swap me Just. Take a sledgehammer to it. It might be fine. Amen? Here's your God. (laughs) How'd that work out for you? If you can play croquet with your God, not good. Not much of a God. Don't we believe we should have these statues in our home? Now, I also want to say this. Be leery of the new things that pop up as well. Because remember, they've gone into a land, and what do they see? A bunch of new gods around them. And it's tempting to go check out the new gods. And it's amazing to me how most of the cults that pop up today are new gods. I got a new revelation from God. Well, there are no new revelations from God. Aren't any? Right here, 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, 1,500 years, one central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? God wrote it. We don't need any more than this. And sadly, there's always a new thing coming along, and people get caught up in it, and they walked away, and here's Almighty God in their presence, and a new thing comes along, and they want to go check it out. And before you know it, they're sacrificing and making offerings to idols. Again, there are new cults popping up all the time. Scientology, it's a cult. It's less than 100 years old. L. Ron Hubbard said he was God, and then he died. How'd that work out? If your God dies, not good. Ekencar. This is my, my land. The people that run the mobile home park where I live are into Ekin Car. And I start talking, I go, Ekencar, Car, what's that? So I looked it up, and the, the most holy Eck came up with this in 1957. And this is a new cult. It's a cult. It's nothing less. Going spirit journeys. You know what? We just need to know the true and living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who created all things, and quit worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. Amen? And in Santa Cruz, they're worshiping trees. And goats and whales and whatever, you know? I mean, anything else but God. And we need to serve and worship only the true and living God. He says there, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Again, these new things. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just the same old devil added again in a new shape and a new form trying to draw people away from the true and living God. Nothing new. Verse 18. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and you have forgotten the God who fathered you. Can there be a sadder statement than people have forgotten the very God who had created them? They turn from the rock of salvation, as I said before, to a pile of rocks. From serving the Creator to serving the created. And again, we live in a time when that is so prevalent today. Now this is a song, remember. They're going to be singing this, memorizing it, remembering. Now, what is this at this point? This is a warning. Has this happened when he writes the song? Has that happened yet? The answer is no. And they're singing this song to warn them because God knew the heart that when they got into a land filled with milk and honey, that they would grow fat, that they'd take their eyes off of God, that they'd be tempted by the things of the world. And God knows that you and I are tempted the same way. So now we go from the goodness of God toward his people And the wickedness of Israel to the faithfulness of God to discipline his people. He is an upright God and he will judge sinful behavior. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them. When the Lord saw what? What were they doing? They're worshiping idols. They're sacrificing to demons. They've grown fat in the land. They're no longer desperate for God. They're trusting in their own bank account. They're trusting in their own career, their own abilities. They're happy with themselves. I don't, I'm not, I don't need to be desperate for God anymore. I can just trust in me. If I hear one more person talk about how we need to esteem ourselves more, and that's our problem, I'm going to throw up. You don't have enough self-esteem. What? We esteem ourselves way too stinking much. That's the problem. <laughs> Amen? You have low I haven't met that person yet. We always think about ourselves. I'm always on my mind. My three favorite people, as I said on Sunday, me, myself, and I. And we're always, it's always about me. And we esteem ourselves too much. We're always thinking about ourselves. The problem is we need to die to self. And we need to fall in love with the Lord. And if someone's walking around, you know, bummed out they just need Jesus not more self-esteem amen yeah. because if you have the Lord you'll have that joy you'll have that peace and when the lost, the Lord saw them getting involved in this stuff the word there says he spurned them because of their apostasy their false worship of false gods their sacrificing to demons their rejection of him them forgetting about the God who created them the word spurned there if you have the King James old King James version The word there is, abhor them, which means to despise or have righteous anger. So when when we, God's chosen people, God's created in His image, God's children, turn away from Him and go and chase our career, God hates it. The word there is, abhor, He hates it. It breaks His heart. Because what? We're chasing after something that's of no value eternally, and we're giving up. What really matters for eternity. He says here, Because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters, having been provoked by the sinful behavior, again, of his own children, Israel. Notice it's sons and daughters. Often when we look at the Old Testament, they only mention the guys being the ones who sinned, right? They tend to be the most dominant ones listed. But it's men and women, they're all doing this. They've all gotten caught up in the worship of idols. And have forgotten about their true God. And he said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. Now, I will hide my face from them. Now, when we choose to go after other gods, what do we do? Even as Christians, we break fellowship with the true and living God. He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. He doesn't cease to be our God, but we break fellowship with Him. We don't have intimacy with God anymore. We've kind of left Him out of the equation. We're doing things on our own. He hides His face from us. This is what He says to the children of Israel. Look, you go into the land, you grow fat, you know, fat, dumb, and happy, and you forget about me, and you start worshiping idols. I'm going to hide my face from you. I won't be leading you every step anymore. You'll be on your own. How many of you as Christians have ever felt like you were out there on your own? Raise your hand. And you know what? Sometimes we, we, you know what? we just walk away from God. Have you ever done that? God, I'm, I'm done for now. I'm upset. You, get in rebellion. Backslide. Whatever word you want to use. And that's what the children of Israel have done. And he says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. You know, when God hides his face from us, we miss the blessing. We lose the intimacy. And at the same time, we need to understand that I believe this happens. I believe that sometimes when we walk away from God initially, there's a a lessening of the problem because we're no longer convicted like we once were. And that's a dangerous place to be. When you start searing over your conscience before God, when you stop listening to the, the, the Holy Spirit conviction, that's a dangerous place to be. And he's talking about the children of Israel. I'm going to hide my face from them, but I'm still going to see what their end will be. God knows of their coming destruction, their captivity, their eventual disbursement, the righteous judgment. And he says there that they are a perverse generation. And the word there for perverse in Hebrew is a perversity or a fraud. They're men and women of perverse spirits. They contradicted and blasphemed the person of God and the truth of His Word. Man, that sounds like our country. Just contradicting the Word of God. I don't care what God says. Who cares? And if you believe in God, you're an idiot. I mean, that's how we're treated as Christians sometimes today. Isn't that true? Especially living where we live. We live in a place that does not believe and honor the true and living God. That's a fact. This is one of the counties with the least amount of people that go to church of any county in this country. I don't know if you knew that. And you know what? Even the ones that go to church, many of them go to places where the Word of God's not being taught. So, how should we feel? We should be brokenhearted for them. We should have a burden for them, a love for them, reach out to them. May we, as a a body of believers, impact a lost and dying world that's around us because we do live in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Children in whom... There is no faith. We defined faith on Sunday. What is faith? The Bible defines it this way. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not seeing and then believing, but believing and then seeing. It's trusting God, even when it doesn't make sense from a physical perspective. God said, my circumstances don't match it, I trust God anyway. That's faith. And you know what? Someone who has faith is someone that God can use in a mighty and a powerful way. But sadly, the children of Israel were faithless. They had, been so, they had so incredibly been gifted with so many things, had so much stuff, they yet got to the point where they no longer believed. Here's the sad part. Who saw more of Almighty God's presence than the children of Israel? Nobody. And yet, what happened as soon as The blessings came. They stopped believing. They stopped being desperate. They stopped crying out to the Lord. Sometimes someone will call me and say, I've been praying for so-and-so, and and I don't know what to do because I'm so brokenhearted. They just got in a car accident. They got arrested for drunk driving, and now they're sitting in jail. God didn't hear my prayers. Oh, yeah, He did. That's it. Wait a minute. I was praying that God. Well, wait a minute. You said God do whatever it takes, and God did what it took. Amen? And too often, it's again, when we're in that, sitting in that green pasture, we forget who the shepherd is, but it's in the valley of the shadow of death that we're hanging on to the shepherd tightly. And so what's happening here is they've forgotten God. There is no more faith because they've been blessed so much. The word again in Hebrew there is there is no steadfastness in them, they can never be depended on. They're fickle, they're faithless. You know, what, you know what I believe? I absolutely believe this. We're going to see this, and, and I already know we're not getting through this chapter tonight. It's just not going to happen. There's just no way. So, okay, we'll go till, we're, till it's time, then we'll stop and we'll finish next time. Now, but here's the thing. We're going to see next week that God has called us to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And God, I believe God has called us to provoke unbelievers to jealousy. Because you know what they need is what we have and we should be so in love with the Lord that people should be coming up to us at work, going dude whatever you have I want it because when things are going sideways you still have peace how in the world you know when your wife got diagnosed with cancer you still had joy when we found out we're losing our jobs and everybody's ready to kill themselves you just said hey praise God and you meant it and I've been watching you and I want what you have but as Christians if we walk around looking like we've been sucking on lemons, we have no testimony. Amen? And the worst thing that can ever happen to a Christian, I believe, as far as your testimony is concerned, is to have an unbeliever come up and say something to you about your walk in a bad way. That hurts. I thought you were a Christian. Right? When you should be faithful, you're faithless, and they go, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you believed your God was great and awesome and powerful. You must not think much of your God. You know what? Our faith can only be as strong as what we place our faith in. Amen? And who do we have our faith in? The Alpha and the Omega. Almighty God. How great is He? He's greater than that. However great you think He is. And so, He says the children of Israel here have forgotten their God. There is no faith. Verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. By following other gods, having allowed him to be, uh, again, their Savior, but he, they did not want him to be their Lord. I don't. You know what, guys? I'm going to share my own personal conviction with you. Pastor Day's opinion, okay? I don't believe in this whole lukewarm Christian thing. I don't see it. He says, if you be hot or cold, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And a lot of people think, well, I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer 27 years ago, and when people want you to do a funeral, it's amazing to me how they'll think that everyone is saved. I've never had done someone's funeral where the people didn't think the person was saved. Ever. And they'll say something like, well, how did he die? Well, he was in a, uh, you know, he was... He was struggling with drugs, and you know, and he was robbing a bank, and he's, you know, shot four people, and uh, you know, and then you know, uh, he got shot, and now you know, and he died, and uh, you know, he was HIV positive because he's living a homosexual lifestyle, and well, well, But when he was 12, he went to camp and prayed a prayer. So he's a Christian. Oh, I don't think so. Ultimately, only God judges that. Amen. That's not my job to judge whether or not someone's saved. That's God's. But let me say this: if you walked in and prayed a prayer when you're 12 and your life never changed, you're not a Christian. Because the word means to repent, means to turn around, amen? And that's what he's saying about the children of Israel here. Look, they provoke me to jealousy by what is not God. They move me to anger by their foolish idols because they were serving false gods. They said, hey, save us from Egyptian bondage, but we don't want you to be Lord. Get us out of Egypt. Now you got us in the land flowing milk and honey. This is the only place I want, you know, leave me alone now. You know, Lord, give me the get out hell free card. Let me put it in my wallet. Now let me live like the world. When I had cancer, I prayed, you, you healed me. Thank you. I'll talk to you next time I got a problem. But until then, I just want to be like the world. That's not Christianity. That's not serving the God of the Bible. And again, he was not the Lord of their daily lives. Let me ask you a question. Is he the Lord of your daily life? When you wake up in the morning, is He the first thought that you have for the day? Are you praying to Him throughout the day? Are you listening to worship? Are you seeking after God? Again, I don't want this to come across as legalism, but you know what? If you're really in love with God, He's going to be on your mind all the time. He's going to be on your heart. He's going to be the passion of your life. And sadly, what happens is we get to the point where we're so fat and so comfortable that God becomes Sunday morning and Wednesday night. God gets two hours a week. The rest of them belong to me. And that is not truly serving God. And look what happens here. He's provoked to anger. Again, not selfish anger, feeling slighted by little attention, but righteous righteous indignation of a holy and gracious God toward children who are unfaithful and even perverse in worshiping false gods. He says there, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Now again, Since they moved him to jealousy by following other gods, he would move them to jealousy by blessing and using other nations. Now, historically, this refers to how God would use Gentile nations to bring judgment upon the Jews. And often he used, well not often, always, he used people that were worse than the Jews. The Babylonians were way worse than the Jews. And and the Babylonians took them away into captivity. Because God, again was provoking them to jealousy to see that God was no longer had His hand upon them, but had His hand upon those bringing judgment upon them. Prophetically, it refers to God calling the Gentiles to salvation after Israel had turned away from the message of the gospel. This verse right here is quoted in Romans 10. Romans 9, 10, 11, speak to the Jews reason people struggle sometimes is they don't understand that. But in that text, of course applying to us, he says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And he quotes that, Paul does, in Romans, in response to whether or not they had received the gospel. He says, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. Today God wants to use us, the church, to provoke the Jews to jealousy, By the spiritual blessings and intimacy that we have with God that they once had as a nation. You know what? I truly believe that during the great tribulation, that I I absolutely believe that the trips we make to Israel and the times that we share with Jews over there, if you've been to Israel, they have it in the windows. It says, thank you, American Christians, for supporting Israel. I've had people come out of their shop and give me a hug and say thank you because you're the only people supporting us. And we show them the love of God and, we, and I've had sat and talked to some of them for hours about the love of God and they're still looking for the Messiah and I truly believe that many of them, when the rapture takes place, are going to remember who it was that loved on them and ministered to them and had joy in the midst of the greatest difficulty. And you know what? That should be evident here too. People should look and when the rapture takes place, they should go, how come all the people that had joy were gone? How come everybody that used to be happy is gone? How, How come the people that were content, no matter what, but again, shouldn't have to wait till the rapture to be a testimony, amen? We should be a testimony right now. Verse 22. It says, I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. How does God feel about idol worship? How does God feel when they start serving other gods? He says, a fire is kindled in my anger and it shall burn to the lowest hell. Here begins the righteous judgment upon the Jews for their unbelief and the following of false gods. Their eventual rejection of the Messiah, their contempt for the gospel, and their treatment of His followers. It says, and shall burn to the lowest hell. The word there is Sheol. And this speaks of total destruction, like the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, when fire and brimstone fell from heaven and turned turned it into a, a, a lake of sulfur that sank to the bottom of the Dead Sea. A land of blessing and faithfulness would be destroyed due to their disobedience and idolatry. You know what? Isn't that exactly what happened after, in a roughly AD 70, what happened to Jerusalem? It was burnt to the ground. The temple was burnt to the ground. And you know what? They ceased to be a nation not long after that for almost 2,000 years. Now I want to make it really clear. Does God love the Jewish people? Absolutely. Does He still have a plan for them? No doubt about it. Amen. And we're not to be anti-Semitic. We're not to be anti-anything. We're to love all people. But at the same time, know that many of the struggles of the Jewish people today are because of the rebellion against God. And And you know what, though? The same is true for the struggles of mankind today. It's because of our rebellion against God. And so sad. It just breaks your heart. It says there, it will... Consume the earth with, it shall consume the earth with their increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Again, if you've been to Jerusalem, the temple was built on Mount Moriah. It's on a mountaintop. And this is prophetic. Hundreds of years before it took place. It was all indeed utterly consumed by fire in A.D. 70 by the Romans. In the Bible, when you see fire, think of two things, judgment and Purification. Both judgment and purification. In some ways like the cross. The cross is either a place of judgment or a place of salvation. And the fire in the trials is either a place of judgment or a place of us being purified and made more into the image of our Savior. I will heap disasters on them. I will send my arrows on them. And again, disobedience and rebellion and idolatry would move them from God's divine protection to God's divine judgment. And it's so sad, from their being in a a place where they were shielded by God to now where He's shooting arrows at them. From where God was protecting them to where God's bringing judgment against them. Man, I, I don't want to be there. How about you? Now, God loves us. He's a faithful God. But know that there are ways where we can rebel against God to the point where divine discipline absolutely will follow. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with poison of serpents of the dust. The devastating judgment of of God would touch every area of life. There would be famine and pestilence and deadly plagues and wild beasts and poisonous snakes. The consequences of disobedience and rebellion are inescapable. Guys, if you think you can live in rebellion against God and it will never touch you, Get ready. And I want you to know something, that God's grace does not not equal God's permission. Well, I've been doing this for two years, and I've been getting away with it. God's grace does not equal God's permission. Good time to repent. Amen? Good time to get right with the Lord. Because, again, God loves you enough that those who He loves, He disciplines He said, the sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within from the young man and the virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Not only would there be famine and pestilence and plagues from within, but there would be attacks from the outside as well. So severe would be the plagues from within and the attacks from without that the people of all ages would be destroyed. In Ezekiel 5, it says this, Because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations all around you, have not walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments, thus I will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of all nations. Ezekiel 5.17 says this, So I will send against you famine and wild beasts. They will bereave you. Pestilence and blood will pass through you. And I will bring a sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Sinful man cannot escape the righteous judgment of God. Aren't you glad you came tonight? (laughs) Man, I didn't know. I thought. You know what, though? Aren't you glad that God warns us in His Word? Because He warns us because He loves us. He warns us because He cares. Don't face the consequences of sin. Know that I love you. The song of Moses warns of the of sin's consequences. It's going to be a reminder to later generations of the reason for their own judgment. God's heart is that through discipline and divine judgment, His people would be broken, repentant, and restored. God's heart is always restoration, not destruction. Amen? He loves you guys. He loves me, and I'm so glad. Verse 26. I would have said, I will dash them to pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done this. So fierce is God's anger rebellion against idolatry that He would have destroyed them completely, but He didn't for one main reason. Why? He didn't want the enemy to take credit for it. He didn't want the enemy to think that they were more powerful, their God was more real, than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't want them to again, again, have the Israel's enemies get the wrong idea about what was happening to Israel, as if Israel's God was weaker than theirs. Though on the verge of total annihilation on several occasions, having few allies, no land of their own for 2,000 years, God has protected and now restored the Jewish nation, and He's not through with them yet. He's Not through with them. Think about it. How many Americans would be left if... They burnt this place to the ground, and we were scattered all over the world for 2,000 years. We'd all assimilate to where we were, but isn't it amazing how the Jewish remnant has remained? Why? Because God's not done yet. Because God is going to use them in a mighty and a powerful way. God's going to be glorified in what He does in them. Even though right now they're in rebellion, God's not done with them, and praise God for that. Many will come to know the Messiah through the time of great tribulation. There's going to be a huge turning back to the true and living God. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Now he's talking now about the, the enemies around them. I don't want the enemies to take credit. I don't want them to think their God is greater than the true and living God. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding within them. Again, These enemies of Israel have no relationship with God. They serve only dead idols. And you know what, guys? There's no counsel except the mighty counselor. There's nowhere else to turn. I get in trouble every time I say it, so I might as well say it again. We don't need to go to the psychologist. We can go to the Lord. Why? Well, wait a minute. Isn't there Christian psychology? Those are opposites. Because psychology says, esteem self. The Bible says, deny self. Psychology says, man can overcome man's problems through man's own efforts. The Bible says, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. The Bible says, without him, we can do nothing. And those two things are total opposites of each other. And we want to run, the Bible says, to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Freud, Jung, and all the fathers of psychology are burning in hell today. Why do we need their counsel? Does God need Freud's help? God could really help you, but you've got to have Freud to diagnose it. I've had people tell me that. Freud had diagnostic diagnostic techniques. I'm like, what? You're telling me God can't do it? He needs any man's help, let alone an unbelieving man? Not at all. And so the point I'm making here, again, is very clear that they were void of counsel because they didn't know God, these false nations. And we're void of counsel if we don't go to someone who has the Holy Spirit within them. Somebody who knows what the Word of God says. Why would you go to a man when you can go to the Lord? It's no different than praying to a statue instead of praying to Almighty God. It's the same thing. We can pray to the Creator of the universe. Why would we pray to a man? And we can go to Almighty God when we're struggling. Why would we go to a man who uses techniques that are contrary to the Bible? And again, I catch static for it, but you know what? If you're into psychology, I love you. And the Lord loves you, okay? But you know what? You don't need the psychologist. You need the Lord. And he's faithful. Now, I want to make this also clear. Do I believe in counseling? Yes, I do. But I believe in biblical counseling. I believe in counseling from the word of God, not the words of men. I believe taking people to, does this book have all the answers? It does. And some people struggle with that. But don't Struggle anymore, it's all in God's word. A couple more verses, then we'll stop. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that we, they would consider their latter end. That they would consider their latter end. Oh, that they would have an eternal perspective, he's saying. All oh, these other nations, all oh, the children of Israel, would have an eternal perspective. You know what? Israel, the surrounding nations in the world today, is so focused on our current pleasures and circumstances that we have no thought of the end result. You know how our children do that sometimes, your parents? Sometimes our kids will do something that we know that the end result for that moment of pleasure is not worth it. Running through the house carrying a butcher knife might seem fun for a second. But we know that the end result is not worth it. And yet we look at that and we see how foolish it is and we realize that's not good for you. But yet we do the same thing with God. God says, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, and then we think, well, yeah, but I'm having a good time, we don't see the end result. We don't see the consequences that will come from walking in disobedience to God. God's Word reveals the clear truth of the end of the result and the end result of, a, of rebellion, the consequences of our sin. Satan tempts us with the temporal, but he never tells us where the road will end, ever. He tempts you with the immediate gratification, but never says, but here's the end result. Here, hey there's a lady a girl at work she's really flirtatious and you know your wife's been kind of ignoring you and it's not that big a deal if you just take her to lunch and he doesn't show you a broken marriage at the other end. He doesn't show you broken relationships with your kids. He doesn't show he just shows you the temptation the thing that will draw you away not what the end result will be. Can I encourage you with something I believe that the thing that has the greatest impact on my walk with God? is constantly being in a position of trying to have an eternal perspective on everything. On everything. No matter what it is. Whatever happens, okay, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, I look at this, help me look at it through your eyes. God desires that we be wise, that we consider the latter end. And then last verse we'll look at here. It says, how could one chase a thousand and two put a thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. Now, it's interesting. Previously, when God was on their side, it said one of the children of Israel would chase a thousand Philistines. Now that they stopped serving God, one Philistine can chase a thousand children of Israel. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And he's saying here, how in the world can this be that these great once great and brave and mighty army now wilts at the sign of the smallest enemy. And that's exactly what happens to us in our walk with the Lord. When we quit being passionate for Him and desperate for Him, the smallest things in the world become huge. What once was not a big deal is now a huge deal because now we're doing it on our own. With God, one could chase a thousand. Without God, one thousand chased one, chased by one. The heathen blind to the fact that it wasn't their great might, but God's righteous judgment that allowed them to defeat their enemy. It's an awkward place to stop, but we will. So I want to encourage you guys read the rest of this song and remember that it's a song. Think about it. It's a song. And they sang it and they memorized it. Why? Because they were to remember the character of God, they were to remember the character of Israel. They were to remember all that God had done for them, but then how that they had fallen into the trap of being so blessed that they stopped being desperate for God. May we never be so blessed that we stop being desperate for God. Amen? May we never get to the point where we have just enough, you know, can I tell you something, just being transparent with you, I remember when I was newly married and I had a number in my mind that if I got that amount of money in the bank, then I would, I would be all right. And I had this number. And I know there's other guys just like me. You know, and you just think, well, if I had that amount of money in the bank, that would be just enough that no matter what happened, we'd be covered. And you get to that number, and you know what? It's not enough, is it? It's just not. And, you know, they asked Rockefeller, how much money do you need to be happy? He said, a little bit more. Was it $1 million, $10 million? A little bit more is the answer. And, you know, we get to the point where we can be so involved in chasing after the buck, so involved in chasing after the possession, So involved that I gotta own a house, I gotta own this, I gotta own that, that now we just don't have time for God anymore. Gotta work two jobs so we can, you know, have the stuff, but then we don't have time for the word. May we make God the priority. May we not be obese and fat and fat, dumb, and happy in the things of this world that we stop being desperate for God. And you know what? It's okay to have wealth as long as you understand who the wealth really belongs to. Amen? It's all his. And you know what? He tends to give it to those who understand that. He tends to give it to those who say, Lord, it doesn't matter. You can have all of it, whatever you want to do with it. You want to use it for your glory, that's fine. But you know what? When we're desperate for it, instead of being desperate for Him, that's often when He doesn't want to put it into our hands because He knows we'll end end up like the children of Israel. So may we not fall into that trap. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your infinite mercy. And Lord, I do pray for each one of us, Lord, help us not to fall into the trap that the children of Israel fell into. Help us, Lord, not to go from being desperate for you to being, to being forgetful of you. May we not get to that place, Lord, where we will allow other things of this world to become more important than you are. Lord, I confess that I know in my own life, I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. So we come before you tonight and we ask in Jesus' name, that you would remove anything from our lives, Lord, that is more important than you. That you would take away the the false idols that we have that we may not even recognize, Lord. Just remove them. And Lord, I pray that, that, Father God, we can be an example to the world around us, that we can provoke unbelievers to jealousy, that people can see the joy of the Lord in our lives. Lord, because we've got the greatest thing there is, a relationship with Almighty God. We've got the antidote for the death serum. We've got the the truth. And Lord, we so desperately want to see Santa Cruz saved. Lord, I just lift up this county to you, Lord. I pray for every unbeliever in this county. Lord, remove the scales from their eyes. Father, may we love them. May we minister to them. May we lay down our lives for them. May we never be self-righteous. May we never think we've got it all figured out and look down upon them. But Lord, may we be one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Lord, we, we just so desperately want to see you move in a mighty and a powerful way. Your kingdom would be glorified. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close a worship song.